Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. For those of you who uh, may be new to the church or maybe those of you who have slept since last week, uh, let me just kind of re- remind you as to, to where we are here in Acts chapter 13. We are in Paul's first missionary journey, and we're entering that, that part of Paul's missionary journey where he is going to be giving this, this sermon to a synagogue, to a, a gathering of, of Jewish worshipers. And uh, what we need to understand uh, about what Luke is doing and in including the sermon here is this. Luke is trying to answer the question or questions, how did the Gentiles get incorporated into the, the people of God? How did they become recipients of the promise that God gave Israel? How, how did that happen? And what type of inclusion is this? Are they, are they equal with the Jews? Is this a, a permanent inclusion with the Jewish people? Is this, is this temporary? Are they secondary? That's, that's some of the questions that Luke is trying to answer as he includes Paul's message here because Paul gives us the answer to those questions. Paul's answer is going to be that the Gentiles are completely integrated into the people of God. The, the promises that God made to Abraham and, and to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament, they've been fulfilled in Christ, and now the, the Gentiles can receive those promises in the same way that the Jew can through faith in Jesus Christ, and only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see as we come to this portion of the book of Acts, and we study Paul's sermon and the response to it over the next three weeks. It's a big text. Uh, this is this has been really challenging to kind of think through how to address, and uh, I've still got a few minutes to figure it out. Uh, hopefully, the Lord will will, will be uh, merciful here this morning. There's there's a lot in this passage. What I'm going to do is this: I'm going to ask us to stand here in just a moment, and we're we're going to read. I'm going to ask you to stand while we read the portion we're considering this morning. Then I'm going to go ahead and let you sit down, and I'll I'll finish reading the rest of what Paul says because I want us to to hear the whole thing as we look at some parts of it, okay? So if you're, if you're able to this morning, uh, please stand with me as we read Acts 13. And we looked at verse 13 of Acts 13 last week. I'm going to go ahead and read that too to give us kind of the, the lead into the, the story this morning. I'm going to read the setting and then Paul's words to the synagogue in Antioch. Beginning in verse 13, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. You may be seated, and as you do so, I'll continue reading. Pick it up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Heavenly Father, I, again, I just echo the things that uh, Wayne has already prayed, thanking you for our country, uh, thanking you for the freedom that we have to be able to live lives in which we can assemble as believers and, and worship you and proclaim the gospel. We pray that as we live in a, a culture that is, it seems increasingly hostile to Uh, biblical truth and the things that are laid out in your word about how people are to live and and to think about you and life and and the purpose of life. We we pray that you give us boldness 
uh, to not love our, our comforts more than we love you. And we pray that you would give us the ability by your gracious hand to proclaim the, the gospel uh, to, to all those with whom you bring us into relationship with. And we thank you for the fullness of, of inclusion into your people. We thank you for your son Jesus by whom your promises are, are kept. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. My daughter Hannah is uh, interning this summer as, as an actuary, which uh, maybe you already know this. An actuary is basically someone who does math for insurance companies. And she was, was telling me this, this past week about some of the things that she's learning. And, and she's, she's telling me that one of the things that she's noticed is this, this dance that's done between the insurance companies and, and politicians, right? You have the, the politicians over here, and, and they're telling the insurance companies, this is what you have to do. And the insurance companies are saying, okay, but it's going to cost you. And the politicians are saying, well, okay, but this is what you want to do. And just, this dance continues. And really, the dance includes the voters, right? You have, the, you have voters who are telling politicians, okay, this is what we want you to tell these insurance companies to do. And if you, if you do this, we'll vote for you. And the, the politicians are saying, okay, well, Insurance companies, this is what we want you to do. And the insurance company is saying, okay, but voters, this is what's going to cost you. And the voters are like, whoa, whoa, what? And the voters, the insurance company, and some of you know this way better than I do. You're, you, you work in the health industry, you're, you sell insurance, you work for Samaritan. I mean, you know this, you know this better than I do, this, this dance of promises and expectations and promises not met and fulfilled and disappointment. and Just this cycle that continues, right? In fact, it's kind of interesting. No one can really trust anyone else, right? The voters tell the politicians do this and we'll vote for you. The politicians go, mm, maybe you will, maybe you won't, right? Can't, can't really necessarily trust you to do that. And the, they tell the insurance companies do this and we'll leave you alone. The insurance companies go, mm, maybe you will and maybe you won't. I'm not sure I can trust you. And they tell the people who have their insurance policies, do this and we'll take care of you. And the people who have their insurance policies say, well, maybe you will and maybe you won't. I don't know. I can't necessarily trust you. There's, there's, this, there's this lack of ability to, to trust in that area of life, right? And it's, it's not just that area of life. The dance is seen in so many areas of, of promise and contract and contracts not fulfilled the way we think that they're going to be fulfilled. I, I was reminded, as Hannah was talking about a time Many years ago, whenever Whitney and I were buying a minivan used, and the, the dealer told us, look, um, I can give you a warranty. And I said, no, 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 I know the deal. I'm not going to get a warranty, all right? He goes, no, 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 let me explain this warranty. And here's this beautiful warranty. I thought, well, that is pretty beautiful. And um, I said, but are you sure it can do this and this and this? He goes, absolutely. And I, I don't know if he was intentionally misleading me, but, but sure enough, I, I bought the warranty and uh, a few years later, I realized that it, the exact questions I had been asking, um, I, he was wrong in what he was telling me the, the warranty could do. Now, the contract that I signed very clearly laid out that I, you know, my understanding was wrong. It was just right there, page three, paragraph two, section four, line three and a half. I mean, it was right there. I don't know why I missed it, right? You know? But that's, that's the nature of contracts and promises, right? You promise something. You believe someone, you're disappointed. It, it's why I, I think I still owe $50 to Columbia House for some DVDs that were, like, or CDs. They were supposed to cost a penny each, and somehow I owe these people $50. I don't know. There's some fine print I definitely missed when I was a 16-year-old. You know. 
you older people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the younger people are like, I just, I just pirate everything. I don't know what. Shame on you, right? Promises, okay? Promises, all human promises, really, all human promises are, are as fragile as a soap bubble, right? Even whenever we have good intentions, we promise our kids things. I, I, yeah, we're going to do this definitely. Oh, hey, sorry, we can't do this. <laughs> I don't have the ability to fulfill this promise. I, I want it to. I, I just I don't have the power to do that. All promises are like that. All human promises. You see, God's promises are different, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that all of God's promises, all of God's promises are yes. He, he does everything that he says he's going to do. All his promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And that's the main idea I want us to think about this morning as we begin looking at Paul's words about God's promises to his people. It's this, the main idea I want us to concentrate on. God fulfills all his promises to his people in and through Jesus Christ. There's no promise that, that God makes that, that he doesn't make good on. There's no intent that he communicates to his people that he says, actually, I know I said that was my intent, but really my intent was something else. All of God's promises are, are good. And not only are all his promises good, God alone has, has the power to fulfill every promise that he makes, and he does that. He fulfills all of his promises to his people in the person of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. And this morning, what we're going to do is begin looking at this sermon we're going to see the, the promise that God made. We're seeing that God makes a promise. We're going to see that he works within human history to fulfill that promise. And we're going to see that he fulfills that promise in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to try to do together this morning. Let's, let's start off. Let's jump in. Let's, first of all, let's look at this truth. God made a promise to his people. God made a promise to his people. And I want us to think about why this is so important. And look at the text with me, if you would. And let's, let's first of all get our bearings a little bit again, right? Verse 13, Paul's, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are on this missionary journey. They've been sent out by this church in, in Antioch in Syria. They travel to the island of Cyprus, and then they leave Cyprus. They travel 170 miles to what's now modern-day Turkey, kind of there on the coast, there, John Mark leaves them and returns to Jerusalem, right? That's all verse 13. Now, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas continue the missionary journey. They don't just stop whenever John Mark goes. They keep going. They, they travel through this mountainous, re, mountainous region in, again, modern-day Turkey. They travel through this region of uh, Pisidia and then this region of uh, Phrygia, and they arrive in this town of Antioch. Now, you say, well, hold on. Have we seen did they come from Antioch? Yes, they did. They came from Syrian Antioch. So there's, there's Jerusalem, then you go north, and you come into Syria, and that's, that's where uh, that Antioch that sent them out is. They travel, they travel, they travel west, they travel up, and they're there in the, the region of Pisidia. And we call this Pisidian Antioch. So there's Syrian Antioch and Pisidian Antioch. I just realized I have no idea if I'm doing that right from your perspective, but look at an atlas, right? Okay, or, or reverse it, whatever. Um, so they're, there, they're now in Pisidian Antioch, this, this, uh, this city. And 
The text tells us it's a Sabbath, and they go into a synagogue, this Jewish worship service on a Saturday morning. It says this in verse 14, right? Now, what would have happened? It says that there's a reading of the law and the prophets in verse 15. What, 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 what took place this Sabbath morning? Well, Paul and Barnabas would have gotten up, and they would have traveled to the, the synagogue, and they would have walked in through the door, and there would have been a, this entrance, and there would have been women who were seated in the synagogue near the entrance, and there would have been men seated elsewhere around the synagogue. In the middle of this room that they were all in, there would be a lectern, and one of the synagogue officials would welcome the people with a recitation of the Shema, right? Shema Israel, the Lord, our hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Then there would be a, a blessing of the people. The synagogue official would have blessed the people, and the people would have said amen. So Paul and Barnabas are sitting there for this part of the, the service, the, the blessing the Lord, time of thanksgiving. And then there would have been a, a section of a reading from the, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. And then there would have been a reading from the, the prophets that the synagogue official would have given. And then after the, the, the blessings and after the time of reading from the Torah and reading from the, the prophets now, it was time for there to be a, a message given, a, a, the the, the text here calls it a word of encouragement where a person would stand up and would, would, ex, would, would expose it, would take a, a, a passage of Scripture or some pa- several passages of Scripture and, and teach the people. And the synagogue of officials, they, they recognize that Paul and Barnabas are there, and so they invite them to, to come and give a word of, of encouragement. And Paul stands up, come to the middle of the room, and and he, he motions with his hands, and then he begins to give this sermon. Now, that's, that's the setting. For us to understand the words that Paul is about to say, we need to understand some things that the people that he's speaking to believe. He, he, he calls them men of Israel, brothers, so, so people who are fellow Jews and, and people who fear God. So he recognizes that not everyone in there is Jewish. Some of them are God-fears, but they, they are drawn to the Jewish religion. Maybe they're, they're Gentiles who haven't fully converted to Judaism yet, and they, they believe things about the Scriptures. That the people that, that Paul is speaking to believe some things about the promises that God has made to his people in what we would consider the Old Testament, what they would call the Scriptures. And there are two kind of promises that that I want us to think about to help us understand the words that Paul is about to say. Because if you don't understand these these two promises in the Old Testament, you won't understand the expectations of Paul's audience, and you won't understand the words that he's about to say. One of the promises that God makes to his people in the Old Testament is the promise that he makes to Abraham, right? The Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about this many times. It begins in Genesis 12. You come into the, the, the Torah, the, the beginning of, of Scripture, and you see that God has created the world, and then we see that there is the fall, and people are separated from God, and then you, you continue from Genesis chapter 3, and you see that things get worse and worse and worse. There's a flood as God deals with, with the sin of the people, of humankind, and, but, and things don't get better. People continue in, in wickedness, and people continue to, 
to be far apart from God. There's the judgment of the nations, and, and things are just this chaotic mess, it looks like. And then what happens? In Genesis 12, God, instead of dealing with, with all the nations, God chooses Abraham. And he intervenes in human history in a very profound way. In Genesis chapter 12, God selects Abraham, and he, he says in verse 1 of Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And, and listen to this promise that God gives Abraham. And, and this promise that he gives Abraham is, is fundamental to understanding how the Jewish people perceive of themselves, how Paul's audience would have understood themselves. God says, I will make you a great nation. This is what he says to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God is promising to Abram here, I'm going to make you a great nation. There's going to be this kingdom. I'm going to, to bless you, and blessing here means I'm going, to, I'm going to do good to you and give you life and, and fullness of joy, both you and your descendants. And then he also tells them, I'm going to make your name great. And there's this idea of, again, kingdom there, royalty. There's going to be this, 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 uh, this, this prominent name that Abraham's descendants are going to have. And then there are promises that follow that are based upon that promise. Those who bless Abraham are blessed. Those who are, who are identified with him are blessed. Those who dishonor Abraham are cursed. And it's going to be through this descendant of Abraham that all the nations are going to be blessed. So God's dealing with Abraham, and through Abraham's prominence, God's blessing through one of his descendants, all the nations are going to be blessed. That's a promise that God gives to Abraham, and by extension to his descendants, to the Jews. So as Paul talks about God's working in history, his audience recognizes he's talking about God fulfilling the promise that he's made to the Jews. He also here, we're going to see as he talks, he also is going to allude to the promise that God made to David. We see this beginning in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that he's going to have this this descendant, 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you, listen to what he says, he says, I will make for you a great name. It's the same thing he told Abraham, right? He's continuing that promise. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a, a place for my people, Israel. Again, he's, he's continuing the things he's promised Abraham. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from that time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, not only am I going to fulfill all these promises to Abraham, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here's what God has promised in the Old Testament. God has said, okay, Israel, Jews, all of the, all of the destruction, 
and sorrow and pain and grief and calamity that's come because of the fall, I'm going to deal with. I'm going to do away with. And I'm going to do it through this, this man Abraham, through one of his descendants. And then he, as he continues, he makes this promise to David, who is one of Abraham's descendants. It's going to be through, through your line that I'm going to establish a king. And all the, all the political chaos, all the, the fear, all of the insecurity that we have because we cannot trust one another, because we, we can't fulfill the promises that we make to one another, because we live in a, a fallen culture, God says, I'm, I'm going to deal with that, and the people are going to dwell in security and safety and in blessing. That's my promise to you. So, as Paul stands up to, to share and to preach, to teach to his audience that's their understanding of, of what God's promise is to them, and we know the promise has not been fulfilled yet as he's speaking these words in, in their mind, right? They're still under Roman rule. There's still lack of fullness of security. There's, there's sorrow. Now, let's think about this. God made a promise, but when it says God made a promise to his people, does that include you and me? I mean, I haven't taken a 23andMe test, but I'm pretty sure I'm not Jewish. As far as I know, no, no Jewish lineage here, right? Abraham and I are very, very, very distant cousins, if, if anything, right? Do I have a right to be called a, a son of Abraham? Well, the answer is, is yes, right? We, we've talked about this as we went through Galatians. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 3? He says, No, then it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And then Paul, Paul says this, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And he goes on throughout the chapter and says, also, says um, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. If you're Christ's, he says in verse 29 of Galatians 3, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the promise that God made to Abraham is a promise that you and I are participating in. It's, it's a promise that's made to us as well. I don't know if you grew up in some of the, the same type environments that, that I did, those who may be older here, adults, but... I grew up in an environment where I went to a lot of, uh, our church did a lot of prophecy conferences and, and you know, did a lot of charts about here's how God's prophetic plan is going to unfold and all those things. And I was just talking with my mom recently, and I've shared the story before about the speaker one time who just stood up and, and said he knew who the Antichrist was, and, but I, he didn't want to tell anybody because he wanted, like, no spoilers or something. I don't know. Like, it was just, you know. But one of the things that uh, sometimes some of the speakers really tried to emphasize was that, and, and they used this phrase, that the church was kind of like a parenthesis. So it's, in other words, they would say God had planned for Israel, 
and it's like, eh, the church. That, that was the impression. Eh, the church. Oh, and then Israel again, right? And I don't think that's a very biblical or very healthy way to, to view God's plan of redemption. In fact, I, one chart I looked at even this past week envisioned that their prophetic understanding was that here's a prophet, and the prophet's looking to the future, and there's these mountain peaks of prophecy that the prophets in the Old Testament saw, and so they saw the Messiah, and they saw the eternal state, but they call the church, like the church was a valley, you know, the church is in a valley, and the prophets didn't see it, and and it's just this this temporary thing, and I I think that's not a very biblical way, I think, to understand God's promise. I I think it's dangerous for a couple reasons. One, we're going to talk in a few weeks about about, um, some principles of pursuing ethnic unity and, and seeing that the, the, the idea that there's one people of God as God brings all people to faith through his son Jesus, I think that undercuts the unity that we that should exist among believers of all different ethnicities. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But, but the important thing here, I, I think, is to understand that there's a promise for a Savior that's given to Abraham, it's given to David, it's given to the Old Testament people that's fulfilled in, in Jesus, and it's, it's a promise that we are participants in as, as well. In fact, as you think about how to approach the Bible and how to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of the very helpful ways to do it is to say, okay, promise fulfillment. There was a promise made in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament, the person of Jesus Christ. And you see the, the New Testament writers speaking over and over again about fulfillment. We see Paul here using the word fulfillment. Promise fulfillment, promise fulfillment. Being an heir changes your life, right? You're included in the most incredible promise you could possibly imagine, that God is going to deal with all your hurts, all the pain of living in a fallen world, all the relational disunity that exists within your family or among your friends or within this church, within this country, within this world. God is going to fully and completely deal with that. it's It's a promise that he made. Whenever Whitney and I were doing our will many, many years ago for the first time, we, uh, we only had, I think at the time, two children, right? And so we sat down, we're filling out all the paperwork, but we're, we're, we use words like, you know, these kids and, and any future children that we would have. And not only any future children we have, but, but grandchildren that we have. And, and now, as, as uh, we're a little bit older, we just redid our will, and we, we, wrote, we wrote out one of the kids, and, and um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll tell you who later. Um, they, <laughs> they don't even know yet. It's hilarious. Um, no, but we said, okay, we, we, we said, these are our children, and, and the future children are incorporated into this, this document just like the ones that exist right now. There's no, there's no, tier one and tier two among our children. And it doesn't matter how you come into the family. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter if you're ad- adopted or come into the, the family by birth. It doesn't matter um, how old you are when you become a, a part of the family. You're, you're fully incorporated. This, this document includes you. And that's a human document. We've talked about the problem with human promises before. God's promises are to his people now, to Abraham, and to his descendants afterwards. And we are the children of Abraham. It's not just a, a song we sing about moving our arms and stuff. We're, we're truly incorporated into God's promises to Abraham. Okay, I need to go on. No, the second thing I want us to see, not only did God make a promise to his people, God acted in history to keep his promise. 
I want you to notice what Paul says here. He says some, some very amazing things. And, and next week, we're going to see how people did some really bad things. He's going to talk about all the, the bad things that the, the Jewish leaders did, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. But notice all the verses here that describe actions that God himself took. So, for example, look at verse 17. These are, notice the words that describe action God did. Verse 17. So he begins, men of Israel, God fears. Verse 17, the God of this people Israel, one, he chose our fathers. That's the first thing he did, right? There's a, a special selection. is isn't chance that Jesus was born Jewish. God elected his people. He chose them. That word describes a, 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 an appointment, a, a, a having several different options and choosing one, selecting one. It's the same word that Paul would use later in Ephesians, talking about God's choice of us and how God should be blessed because he chose us before the foundation of the world. So God chose, look what else God did, verse 17. He made the people great. Again, there's that idea of of creating a great name during their stay in the land of Egypt. And then here's another thing he did, another action that God did in verse 17. He led them out of Egypt. So he, he saved his people of Israel. This is the defining act of God's salvation in the Old Testament. It's this beautiful picture of the ultimate deliverance that he would give his people from sin. It's not the ultimate fulfillment of his prophecy, promise yet, but it points to his promise. The, verse 18, more action that God did. He, he put up with his people, verse 18. It says, he put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. You come to verse 19, more acts of God. It says that he granted his people an inheritance. There's that, this idea of, of bestowing upon someone their, their portion that's going to be theirs because of their inheritance. He did this, it says in verse 19, after he destroyed the seven nations of the land of Canaan. So he prepares this land for them and the, he gives them the land as their inheritance. Verse 20 tells us that this takes about 450 years. So from the time of Egypt to the time of delivering them into the land through the conquest, it's about 450 years. And God, God doesn't stop doing things. Now he continues to do things in verse 20. It says he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, and he gave them a king in verse 21, Saul. So verses 17 through 21, you see God doing, doing, doing this, and creating this, and establishing that. And then he slows down a little bit, and he talks about something else God did as he acts in human history to keep this promise. It says that he gave them, or excuse me, he raised up David, verse 22. He removed Saul. He raised up David. This is an act God himself did. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I've found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. Again, he's alluding here to this covenant that he makes with David to establish his throne forever. And Paul says he has accomplished that. This is the last thing that Paul emphasizes that God has done as he looks at this text. Verse 23 says, Of this man's offspring, that's David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So this is the fulfillment of God's promise. Again, Paul's audience would have had this assumption that they understood God has made these promises and 
Paul saying, yes, he made these promises. Now he, I'm going to show you how he acted in human history to bring about these promises. And here's the fulfillment of the promise. It's this man named Jesus. And then it, he says again, God, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior as he promised. Then verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the sandals of uh, the sandals of whose feet one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And then he's then Paul is going to go into some application and call them to respond. As he again, he says, "Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God." And then he, he goes on. So I want to stop there here for, for a moment for, for this morning in terms of the text we look at. God has brought about a Savior. He's acted in human history to to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and to David. God brings about salvation to his people, pictures of salvation to his people throughout human history, throughout the Old Testament history. But these things that he does aren't the fullness of his promise. He saves his people from Egypt, but it's not the fullness of his promise. It it points to his promise. It's a picture of his promise, but it's not the fullness of his promise. He provides David, and David's a man after God's heart. He he points to the promise. He's, He's a picture of the fulfillment of the promise, but he's not the fullness of the fulfillment of the promise, right? That's Jesus. We'll talk about that just in a moment. So what do we see? We see God made a promise that applies to you and me, and we see that God has acted in human history to bring about that promise. Now, why is that comforting? It's comforting because many of us have been made some great promises. But we've been made these great promises by people who don't have the ability to fulfill those promises. You and I have been made a promise by God. We are heirs. We're sons and daughters of Abraham. And we weren't made this promise by some pastor who, who doesn't have the ability to, to, to get his own life together in terms of being able to, to determine what's going to happen tomorrow. We weren't made these promises by parents who can't keep their own lives together and force things to happen the way they want. We're made these promises by a God who has acted in human history to bring about everything that he said he would bring about in the way that he said that he would bring about. He has absolute and complete authority. There is incredible, what I want to see here, there is incredible security in this. Not only are you an heir of the promises of God, you are a secure heir. I was reading an interview uh, with drummer Nick Banks. Uh, Drummer Nick Banks was, or is, I think, a a drummer for the Brit pop band Pulp. And uh, Nick Banks was talking about how... uh, in the 90s and the 80s around London, you had these posh people, these upper-class people who would come and kind of slum it with the common Londoners. And he says, you get the idea that they were different. They, they knew they could kind of bum around in the areas that we were and do what they wanted to do because if things didn't go well, they could call in the trust fund and head off for the south of France. Most people can't do that, he says. That, that, that's not what you can do, you're stuck with what you've got. And he would go on and uh, write the song Common People, about a, a song about a rich girl who 
wants to pretend that she's a commoner, but the narrator of the song says this. She says, look, uh, he says, look, even if you want to live like a common person and pretend you never went to school, but still you'll never get it right because when you're lying in bed at night watching roaches climb the wall, if you called your dad, he could stop it all, right? You think you're a common person, he, he says to this rich girl, but you know that if you call daddy, he could take care of this. Now, the, the same is, is true in a much more real sense for you and I. We may at times live like people who are not in Christ, but the reality is if we have received Jesus Christ, we're in Christ, and we have the promises of Abraham, we are heirs beyond our wildest ability, and there's no point at which we can, can arrive where we are uh, separated from the promises of God. There's absolute, complete security. In fact, th- think about whatever is going on in your life right now, a mighty and powerful God has been working about your salvation from eternity past into human history. God foreknew you, he chose you, and as he worked through him, human history to, to save his people, to make a promise to Abraham, to deliver the people from Egypt, to bring them through the wilderness, to do all these things, God was securing your salvation As he brought about his son, Jesus Christ, he was working to bring about your salvation, the promises that God has made to you. I don't know what's going on in your life right now this morning as you're sitting there in those chairs, but God has you securely in his hand, and his promises to you still stand. You say, are you sure? Yeah, I am. See, Daniel, I am going through some incredible financial struggles right now. Hebrews 13 tells you this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's your promise this morning. It still stands. It's secure. You say, well, Daniel, there is some, there is some sin in my life, and I, I keep falling into the same pattern, and I, I'm, I'm doubting that God's promises to me are going to stand. Philippians 1, 6 tells you this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion if, at the day of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Daniel, my life is hard. I'm going through these, these circumstances right now of, of these pressures, this illness, this, this time of, of just deep depression. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are, who are called according to his purpose. You say, well, I think, I think God may just be done with me. I think God may just be done with me. Uh, John six thirty seven. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I don't know the specific thing that you're going through this morning, but I know that God's promises stand. I know that I can look back in God's redemptive history and say, okay, God has done from eternity past everything necessary to deliver on his promises. I know that he has brought his Savior, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. I know that I have trusted in him. So I don't know how all these things are going to work out right now, but I have absolute and complete confidence that whatever I'm going through right now, God has acted in history to keep his promise. He will continue to do so. Which brings me to the third thing that I want us to talk about this morning, and this may be your struggle this morning. This, this may be why you doubt the things I've just said. God fulfills all his promises to you in Christ and in Christ alone. The promises that God has made to you this morning are not just some arbitrary promises. He says, I'll figure this out somehow. God says, my, my promises are fulfilled in one person and in one person only. It, it's in Christ. 
And so if you're looking to have your promises that God has made to you fulfilled in something other than Christ or someone other than Christ, you're going to be sorely disappointed, right? The mistake the Jews made is they didn't see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7, what happens? As Stephen is proclaiming the gospel, the Jews get really upset. They're upset because they think he's preaching against the temple and he's preaching against the law. And Stephen says, no, 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 no. Um, the temple's nothing. Jesus is everything. The law is nothing. Jesus is everything. The temple and the law point to Jesus. You've got this whole thing turned around, mixed up. You and I, sometimes we have this whole thing turned around, mixed up. Sometimes we think, look, if I, if I come to God, these blessings that I want are, are, are going to fall the wayside. I'm going to have to give up so much as I follow Christ in discipleship. No, 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 no. The, the bless, you know, Jesus doesn't lead us to material blessings. The, the material blessings that God has given us at times are, are things that allow us to, to worship God. They're, they're means to our ultimate end of the promise in Jesus. And the, the deliverance from the fall, the deliverance from the curse, none of those things are going to be met in anything or any, uh, anyone other than Christ. A question we can ask ourselves at times as we find ourselves saying, boy, if I, if I just get this one thing, if I just get this one thing, all the, the blessings I desire will be met. A, a question we can ask ourselves sometimes is, okay, what is this thing that I want? And can this, this need that I believe that I have be met with or without Christ? And if we say, you know what, this, this need that I have can be met with or without Christ, I, I would suggest to you this morning, very gently, that it's not your ultimate need. If you say, I have this need, but I don't need Christ to meet the need, it, it's not a true ultimate need. It may be an important thing. It may be a thing that we, we would pray that God would, would, would grant, but it's not our ultimate need. My ultimate need is not good health. My ultimate need is, is not material blessing. My ultimate need is, is not people to like me. My ultimate need is to be found in relationship with God. And that ultimate need is only met through Jesus Christ. Nothing else I need. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Colossians 1.15 tells us this about who Jesus is. Listen to what Colossians says about who Jesus is and why I would tell you that all of God's promises are met in Christ. There's nothing else we could possibly need. Colossians 1.15 and following. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach before him. There's nothing else you need. You need nothing else beyond being reconciled to God. 
and being found in Christ. That is all that you ultimately need. And all the, the blessing, the fullness of that inheritance you have in Christ can only be found in Christ. A gift we receive through faith. Don't look anywhere else. All of God's blessings are ours in Christ. All of our needs are met in Him. God fulfills all His promises to His people in and through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, this, this good news of the fullness of, of Your promise being met for us in Christ. And, and Father, I, I pray for those this morning who are struggling, who are hurting, for those who are discouraged, for those who have been lured away by, by just various desires, enticed by, by various pleasures that are found apart from you. Lord, we pray that you would renew our hearts this morning. You would cause us to seek your Son, Him fully and Him alone. We pray this in His name. Amen.